If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 67 war is one of those pivotal moments in the Arab-Israeli conflict along with 1948 and we're still living with the direct consequences of it today. That was Matthew Hughes talking about the Six-Day War. Medieval London uh, was a tinderbox. I mean, it wasn't like they were stupid people or people had no idea that, that houses would go up, but the difference in sort of architectural thinking before and after the Great fire and therefore the difference in the look of London before after the Great Fire is, is quite pronounced and profound. And that was Dan Jones discussing the Great Fire of London. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of June 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In a few days' time, we'll reach the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, a brief but dramatic conflict which saw Israel win a crushing victory against its Arab neighbours, chiefly Egypt, Jordan and Syria. The war saw Israel make large territorial gains, and the status of many of them continue to be sources of tension today. For the latest issue of BBC History magazine, Professor Matthew Hughes has written an article which charts the course of the conflict over its six-day duration. I spoke to him down the line earlier this week to find out more. Could you just give us a brief idea of the situation in this part of the Middle East before the Six-Day War. So where exactly were Israel's borders and what kind of relationship did Israel have with its neighbours? Well, in 1967, Israel had the borders that it had established in 1948 when it formed the Jewish state of Israel. And those borders excluded the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, what the Jews called Judea and Samaria, also the old city of Jerusalem, and the border with Syria ran along or very close to the upper reaches of the Jordan River. So Israel was was quite small, and in the middle part of Israel, the distance between Jordanian territory in the West Bank and the Mediterranean Sea was was very tight. It was about 12 to 15 miles at the most slender part of Israel. And all of, all of that all of that territory then 
uh, all of the territory I just mentioned, that gets taken by Israel in the 1967 war. So if you look at a map, suddenly Israel goes from being um, geopolitically quite small and quite vulnerable to being a much larger state with natural borders along the Jordan River, a, a ridge line along the Golan Heights, and also along the Suez Canal with a big buffer zone in the Sinai Peninsula. Now, if uh, a country's relations with its neighbours are very friendly and diplomacy works very well. The issue of natural borders is less of a problem. But if you have a very tense situation, as you had in the Middle East, and Israel had no peace treaties with any of its neighboring Arab states, the idea of having these defendable borders, which are natural and give a country strategic depth, become very, very important. And after the 1948 war, Israel only signed ceasefire agreements, like armistices, like we had an armistice at the end of the First World War. They didn't sign a peace treaty. So it's a strange period where you have a country in a region with all of its neighbours, and it has no diplomatic relations with any of those neighbours. Not formal diplomatic relations. In fact, behind the scenes, the Israelis had secret channels of communication to various Arab countries, but they were informal, not formal, secret, not um, in the open. And you mentioned before that the West Bank was in then Jordanian territory, wasn't it, at that point? I think it was Gaza was then run by Egypt. Is that true? Yes. Uh, the Egyptians ran uh, Gaza or the Gaza Strip as a, as a military zone. It was run by the Egyptian army. And the West Bank, including the old city of Jerusalem. So if you go to Jerusalem today, it's the walled city plus the eastern suburbs, whereas the western part of Jerusalem was uh, the Jewish half of the city. In fact, in 1948, there were pockets of Palestinians living in places like Katamon, and they left in 1948. They were forced out or they left. And so the, the Jordanians controlled the whole of the old city, the eastern suburbs of Jerusalem, and all of what you know now as the occupied territories of the West Bank. And they also ran that as a military zone. They installed a, a governor from the Nashashibi family, the Palestinian Nashashibi family, uh, but the, the Jordanian army controlled the West Bank. And it was a very tense situation because along the ceasefire line between the West Bank and Israel, as it was formed in 1948, there were a lot of border clashes and there were some pretty nasty border Border raids, uh, one of which at a place called Samu, I think in 1966, led to a large number of Palestinians being killed in, a, in an Israeli raid. And what do you see as the prime causes of the Six Day War? Well, that depends on your perspective. The Israeli perspective is the primary cause was an existential threat to Israel from neighbouring Arab states that were driven by anti-Semitism and they had an eliminationist urge to destroy the state of Israel. The view in many of the more of the scholarly books on what's going on is that the neither side wanted a war; they fell into a war. And some critics of Israel argue that the Israelis escalated clashes along the border just such as the West Bank that I just mentioned, but also in the north along Syria, because there was a very um, strongly pro-Palestinian government in Syria from 1966, and that the Israelis escalated tensions along the border because certain hawkish elements within the Israeli state preferred to, to have a military solution to the problem of their relations, Israel's relations with the Arabs, than a diplomatic one. So there are really two different perspectives on why the war happened, one of which is more pro-Israeli, one of which is more pro-Arab. And into that mix, you can add a set of events that tumble one to the next and events on the ground lead the diplomacy. And so it's not always the case that the people who are in charge were actually leading events, events were leading them. And was there any Cold War connection to this? Did either the United States or the Soviet Union have any interest in a war taking place? 
Of course, it's worth remembering that in 1967, the Americans are in the middle of the Vietnam War, which is escalating towards the Tet Offensive in 1968. So this is the height of the Cold War. Uh, American forces are fighting in Vietnam and in Indochina. So America's focus is elsewhere. Uh, America does support Israel, but the uh, support that America gives Israel really picks up after the Six-Day War. And if you look at Israeli military equipment before the war, much of it's for French origins of the Israelis by French fighter jets like Mirage um, and Mister from the, from the French Air Force. You also have French tanks. So America is supportive of Israel, but its focus is elsewhere. The, the villain here is the Soviet Union, because just before the Six-Day War starts, the Soviets, for reasons to do with the Cold War and, and, and a desire to make trouble for the Americans, issue a mischievous report that the Israelis were massing to attack Syria in the north. And the Israelis were not massing to attack Syria. And in fact, the Israelis told the Soviet ambassador in, in Israel, look, you can come to our northern frontier. You'll see we're not massing for any attack. But the Soviets were doing that partly to make trouble for the Americans, but also because the Soviets had a, had a heavy investment, as indeed they do today, right in the form of Russia, in Syria, because the Soviets were supporting the Ba'athist socialist regime that had come to power in Syria in the 1960s before the war. So the Soviets were playing their own game. And it's not fully clear why the Soviets were doing what they were doing, but the connection to Syria, the need to make trouble for America are two very important uh, pieces in the jigsaw as to why the war happens. Is it possible to say which of the two sides was the prime aggressor? The war, it did begin with an Israeli preemptive strike, but were they right that the Arab countries were gearing up for war as well? Perhaps another way of looking at this in, in a sort of a more historicist way is to, is to look at what people were thinking at the time, as opposed to what what was actually happening. The Israelis genuinely thought they were going to be attacked. This would be another destruction of the temple. It would be the end of the Jewish state. So the perspective of the Israelis at the time is that they genuinely felt under threat from Gamal Abdel Nasser, from the rise of Nasserism, Pan-Arabism, the Egyptians had a defense treaty with Syria, and then just before the war started, Jordan joined this defense pact. So it looked as though there was a united front against Israel. So in that sense, the Israelis, when they launch a preemptive strike, and of course Israel being small and having no strategic depth, if it does fight a war, it's going to probably go for a preemptive strike because it can't absorb an attack and then respond. The, the Israelis genuinely thinking that they were going to be attacked were right in what they did. The issue is that if you look at Nasser, his his deployment of troops into the Sinai was more about posturing to other Arab states. He was involved in a war down in Yemen. The best parts of his army were down um, a long way to the south fighting in a civil war in Yemen. And in that sense, it doesn't look as though Nasser wanted a war, but that's not what the Israelis thought at the time. And Nasser ended up talking himself into a war and a series of events unfolded one to the next and Nasser ended up painting himself into a corner. Prior to the war beginning, what was the military balance of power between the Israelis and their Arab neighbours? Well, militarily, because the Arabs have a, the Arab neighbouring states have a much much larger population. So in terms of quantity, the Arab forces exceeded the Israeli ones. The issue was not quantity, but quality. And also the Israeli army, when it mobilised, could make itself into a much more powerful force by bringing in a well-developed reserve system so men and women who've done their period of conscription will be called back to fight again. So it's not so much a question of quantity. In fact, the Israelis will often put 
put this argument forward that there are many more um, Arab troops, many more Arab tanks, many more Arab planes. But it's to do with the quality of the equipment and also the quality of the people wielding the equipment. And in particular, this is true of the Air Force, because it's the Air Force in the initial stages of the war, the Israeli Air Force, that wipes out the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. And then it wipes out the Iraqi and Jordanian Air Forces to the east. And once they've wiped out the Air Force, the Egyptians are then completely um, without any top cover in the Sinai. And the Sinai obviously is a desert region, so it's barren. There's no jungle cover or anything. So the Egyptian army is exposed and the Israelis can then pound them from the air without having to worry about any Egyptian Air Force opposition. And the Israeli army can also then roll out using its tanks. And the Air Force, of course, is the most technologically advanced branch of the armed forces. I mean, the planes they use are very complicated. And the French supplied equipment, Air Force equipment that goes to Israel is operated in a much more capable way by the Israelis. They're very aggressive and they use the equipment that the French give them to overcome and destroy the Soviet supplied MiG planes that are given to Egypt and to Syria. The issue in, the, in terms of the air is crucial because in the first hour of the war, Israel wins by destroying the Egyptian air force, almost 300 planes in a few hours, mostly on the ground. Nowadays, we're used to conflicts lasting, often dragging on for months or not years. How could it be that this conflict was over in less than a week? Well, it's remarkable. And for military historians, this is an example of how war can be a political tool very, very quickly, and all the glory comes to the victorious army after only a few days fighting, minimal casualties on the Israeli side, uh, under 1,000 dead, although thousands and thousands, people don't know how many, but thousands and thousands of Syrians, Jordanians and Egyptians are killed. So the six-day war in the middle of the Vietnam War, you're right, it does look very different because it's a very short, sharp war. It's between two conventional forces. So it's not a, an asymmetric war with a guerrilla force. And of course, guerrilla armies uh, fight a protracted struggle. I mean, their aim is to wear down a stronger opponent, as indeed the Viet Cong or the, the North Vietnamese guerrilla forces did with the Americans in Vietnam. But the Six-Day War is a reference point for military history in terms of how one country can achieve so much territorial gain uh, such a crushing military victory, and it seems at the time that this military victory will transfer itself into a political solution as well, because Israelis have all this territory that they can trade after the war, although that doesn't actually happen for many, many years. So it is a, it's a remarkable triumph, and it's one that the in the Indo-Pakistan War in 1971, the two forces try and replicate, not very successfully. So it's atypical in a period when many wars, like the Vietnam War and the Korean War, drag out, and also many of the guerrilla struggles, drag out for, for a long period of time, often for many years. You mentioned how in the first day the Israeli Air Force wiped out the Egyptian Air Force and, and some of the other Arab countries' Air Forces too. So was the war essentially actually won on that first day? Well, it was because the Egyptian army was also the most powerful army. Uh, the Jordanian army was very good, but it was very small. Um, and in fact, it was British trained and it had British equipment and the Jordanians fought very well, but there weren't that many of them. And Jordan is a much smaller country. And in terms of the Arab states arrayed against Israel, Egypt was by far the most powerful country. It had the largest air force and the largest army. So once the Israelis flew out over the Mediterranean Sea, came in to Egypt from the West, which is obviously unexpected because 
because the Egyptians expected any attack to come in from the east, and the Israelis have been practicing this for a long time. Once they caught the Egyptian Air Force on the ground and wiped out most of the Egyptian, Soviet-supplied Egyptian planes on the aprons, on the tarmac, the war was effectively over. Then it was a mission for the Israeli army to push out into the Sinai. And once Israel had defeated Egypt, that was the major opponent gone. Uh, the Jordanians, who always actually had a fairly good relationship, a, 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 a sort of a secret, but a, a best of enemies sort of relationship with Israel, Jordan was dragged into the war. And the Syrians at the end of the war, the Israelis dealt with them very quickly. So the major opponent was Egypt. And you're right that once the Egyptian air force is gone, the, the war is over. It's a game changer. The rest of it is just an operation to clear up um, enemy ground forces. It's one of the reasons why in the 1973 war, the Egyptians and the Syrians counter Israeli dominance in the air by bringing in not Soviet planes, which the Israelis are looking for, but they bring in Soviet missile systems, uh, radar guns guided missile systems and what are known as SAM-6s, also some SAM-7s, but mainly SAM-6s, and they tied them into uh, guns, like tank-mounted guns, to create defensive sort of aerial perimeters so their army could fight because the Egyptians knew that if they fought the Israelis again and they couldn't do something about Israeli air power, the Egyptian army on the ground would be pounded. And in 1973, in the, in the next war that the Israelis and the Arabs have, the Egyptians do very well initially in blunting the Israeli air force because they learned from the 67 war that without dealing with the Israeli air force, the Egyptian troops on the ground are horribly exposed. So if after the first day Egypt was virtually defeated, why did Syria and Jordan then decide to fight on Egypt's side? Would it not have been worth them just trying to stay out of the conflict? For sure. And the Assyrians, actually to deal with Jordan first, the king of Jordan, Hussein, is on the horns of a dilemma. If he does nothing and ignores the plight of the Egyptians as they're destroyed by the Israeli army, there's a chance that he'll be overthrown by a wave of Arab opposition to this humiliation of the defeat of a major country like Egypt. So Hussein has to do something. If he doesn't do something, he could well lose his whole kingdom. He will be seen to be someone who wasn't willing to step up to the plate and join a pan-Arab front against a common enemy. On the other hand, if he does join the war, he knows he's going to lose the West Bank and also the old city of Jerusalem. So, as I say, he's on the horns of a dilemma. He either doesn't join the war, in which case he could lose his whole kingdom, or he joins the war and loses a portion of it, including the major city of Jerusalem, which for the Jordanians is um, highly significant because compared to Amman, the Jordanian capital, Jerusalem has a historical and religious significance. And it gives Jordan a place in the world that it doesn't have if it doesn't control Jerusalem as well. So in the end of the day, Hussein probably makes the best choice, which is he loses part of his kingdom, but he keeps his power base and the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan is still in existence today. The Syrians, it was ironic really, because the war starts on the northern front and all the clashes just before the war starts are on the Golan front between Syria and Israel. There's a, an air battle just before the war starts when the Israelis knock down some Syrian planes, one or two of which fall onto the Syrian capital, Damascus. In the north, the Syrians who are involved in starting the war with the Israelis, and the Israelis escalate, and there's a lot of tension in the north, the Syrians don't do anything. And it's only at the end of the war that the Syrians get involved. And the reason they get involved is not because they're aggressive, they sit back and don't do anything, it's because the Israelis attack them. 
And this is linked in with the Israeli cabinet at the time and the involvement of people like Moshe Dayan, who switches from not attacking to attacking. There's also a link with the settler movement in the northern part of Israel, which is angry at Syrian cross-border bombardments on Israeli settlements inside of Israel. And at the end of the war, having beaten the Egyptians and the Jordanians in a, in a very short period at the end, the Israelis then take the Golan Heights, which also gives them a commanding position because they capture in the north part of Mount Hermon, which is very high. In fact, it's so high you can go skiing up there. And it gives them the opportunity to look down towards Damascus. The problem with occupying and attacking uh, Syria and occupying Syrian land is it brings the Soviets into the war because the Soviets are allied to Syria. And the Soviets put very heavy diplomatic and also military pressure on Israel, also on a America and also via the United Nations to make sure that the Israelis stop short of the capital city of Damascus. And of course, interestingly, at the end of the war, the Israelis are very close to Cairo, to Amman in Jordan and to Damascus, but they don't actually invade any of those capital cities. In fact, the only Arab capital city they've invaded is, is Beirut in 1982-83. And that led to a, a series of horrible consequences, both for the Lebanese but also for the Israelis as they were sucked into urban fighting. So the Israelis stopped short of pushing that far. But no, at the end of the war, Nasser actually tells the Syrians, look, hold, hold on to your army, hold on to your air force. We, we, we're done for on the Western Front, but there'll be another opportunity for a struggle. And so the Syrians don't attack, but that doesn't stop the Israelis from attacking them. There's something called the Syrian syndrome. It was particularly tough in the north. The Israeli relations with Syria were particularly bad. And so the Israelis had a, had a bone to pick with the Syrians. And at the end of the war, they had the opportunity to deal a last blow to the um, neighbouring Arab states that had been arrayed against Israel. So we talked before about the capture of Jerusalem. Could you give us a sense of what that meant to both the Israeli and the Arab people? And actually, when it happened, how did the Israeli forces cope with such a sensitive moment? In some senses, it's, it's a disaster. It was like, I can't easily see how any future settlement between the Palestinians and the Israelis can deal with the issue of the holy sites in the old city. And in particular, it's the Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary with the Dome of the Rock, the mosque that you can see on the top. And then below it, you have the Wailing Wall, which is the remnants of the Jewish temple, Herod's temple. And the Israelis capture it quite they capture it quite easily in 1967 because the fighting that's done is done outside of the city and then once the fighting outside of the city is done the israelis crash into the old city through two of the gates lions gates was in st stephen's gate and also the zion gate so they come in through these two gates actually from the jordanian side not the israeli side so the eastern side not the western side and they rush into the Haram al-Sharif area, which is the Muslim area, it's the third most holy site in Islam, which sits atop the Wailing Wall. And one of the suggestions at the time was to blow up the Muslim holy complex on the top, which the Israeli army thankfully didn't do. But they did clear below the Muslim area, next to the Wailing Wall, a big piazza. So if you ever go to the Wailing Wall today, you'll see there's a large open space where there were houses, Arab-Palestinian houses, going up very close to the wall, which they removed those houses. But they kept and they didn't damage the complex atop the Wailing Wall. So that's still there today. So if you go to the region, you can visit the Wailing Wall and also go up on the top and visit the, the Muslim site as well. They had a casualty clearing station in the holy area, the Muslim holy area at the top during the battle, but that was cleared out fairly quickly. And some um, extreme elements suggested to the Israeli army that it should 
while it had the, had the opportunity, destroy the Muslim complex. But the uh, Israeli army said no, and the Israeli commanders uh, refused to do this. So they ended up managing a site where you've got two holy sites, one of which is the most holy site for Jews, right next to juxtaposed on top of each other in the same spot. You mentioned there the, the situation with the Palestinian Arabs. What was their response to what was going on in the Six-Day War? Did they want the Arab countries to win and how did they feel about Israel's victory? They did. They had in Gaza Strip some Palestinian military units which fought in the war against Israel, but the two areas where the Palestinians were living in the Gaza Strip and West Bank were under Egyptian and Jordanian rule, so the battles were fought fundamentally by the Egyptian and Jordanian armies. Once the Israelis occupied Gaza Strip and the West Bank, I mean, two things happened. One, the Israelis now occupied a vast number of extra Palestinians. And the Israelis didn't, there wasn't any expulsion of peoples as that happened in 1947-48. So the Israelis were now responsible for two pieces of territory, one of which the West Bank was very sacred for the Jewish tradition. So Jewish settlers moved in. So this created a, a real problem where you had the two communities mixed up with Jewish settlements amongst Palestinian villages. The other issue was it led to a rise in terror attacks by Palestinian guerrilla forces, famously the PLO, but there's also the PFLP, the PFLPGC, a whole series of different Palestinian guerrilla organizations that launched terrorist attacks very famously on planes. So you saw planes being hijacked and blown up. One of the reasons that happens is there's an emergence after the Six-Day War of a reinvigorated Palestinian nationalism. Because, of course, the Palestinians, who'd relied on Gamal Abdul Nasser, the leader of Egypt, to fight their cause, saw his army defeated by the Israelis. The Palestinians saw the neighboring Arab states defeated very heavily by the enemy. So the Palestinians turned in on themselves and relied on their own energies, their own force and their own organization to push for a Palestinian state to push for the Palestinian cause. So you then start to see after this period, occupation, the Israelis having to um, suppress the population, but also having to deal with terrorism more broadly understood, not just in Israel, but across the across the world, including very famously a plane hijack, which is taken to Uganda, to a place called Entebbe, which is an airport. And it's uh, a hijacking against um, Israel. So it becomes a global war. And that's a consequence of the Six-Day War too. So how did the Six-Day War actually come to an end? Was there any kind of peace agreement or was it just a ceasefire? No peace agreement. I mean, a ceasefire came into operation and the Israelis had pushed um, the neighbouring armies back. But there weren't even ceasefire talks as there had been after 1948 war. There were um, talks on a, the Greek island of Rhodes and they fixed ceasefires, sort of like an armistice, but they didn't manage to go further and have a peace treaty. So the end of the Six-Day War was a purely military solution to what was a fundamental political problem, which is the legitimacy of the state of Israel and the rights of the Palestinians, which are two political problems. And what you now have was a military solution to these political problems, which in the short term was a solution, but in the long term it wasn't, as is usually the way. A military solution is not a long-term solution to what is a political problem. Although the Israelis thought the war had been such a triumph that they could sit behind their expanded borders and not have to think about Arabs ever attacking them again or neighbouring Arab states. And of course that didn't happen because in 1973 there was another war. Among the general populations, what was the response of people in the Arab countries and people in Israel to a crushing victory and a crushing defeat? 
in Israel, it was it was euphoric. This, they, they thought Israel was going to be destroyed, and now Israel had emerged triumphant out of the war. It's quite interesting looking at photographs, because if you look at photographs from the 1967 war of Israeli soldiers, you can see on their faces this mood this sort of, of triumph, of victory, a, a certain euphoria. If you look at photographs from Israeli soldiers from the 1973 war, it's really quite grim. They don't look anything like they do in the 1967 war. It's a much tougher war. They don't come out of it with the clear triumph that they do in 1967. So in that sense, it's they're very different. And in terms of the Arab states, they amazingly, Nasser holds on to power. You'd think after such a defeat, he'd be toppled, but he, he doesn't. And he carries on for a few more years before he dies. But across the Arab world, there are a lot of attacks against, for instance, American diplomatic and cultural centers because the Arabs blame the Americans, saying that the Americans have been supporting Israel. Although they had some American munitions and, and equipment, the Israelis were quite capable of defeating the neighboring Arab states on their own. But there was a, there was a sense of blaming the Americans for what was, at the end of the day, a, a diplomatic gaffe by NASA and a defeat for the Arabs that really was something that happened inside the Arab community and is not fundamentally America's fault. How important do you think the outcome of the Six-Day War was to the ongoing difficulties that Israel has, both with its Arab neighbours and with the Palestinian population that it occupies? Well, it's pivotal because, of course, what happens after 1967 is the rise of the settler movement. Uh, there's something called Gush Emunim, which is formed in 1974. Um, as soon as the war finishes, you start to have a movement of Jewish settlers into the West Bank, uh, less so into Gaza. And there's actually some settlement in the Sinai as well, where that's eventually removed. But especially into the West Bank, there's a heavy movement of settlers. And of course, that makes a, a fundamental problem to any settlement today, because any Palestinian state becomes a, a, a canton, a series of territories which are not contiguous, because you've got all these Jewish settlements higgledy-piggledy amongst the Palestinian villages and towns. So it, it's a fundamental problem. And also the triumph for Israel releases a, a mood of sort of messianic Zionism, which is reflected in the settler movement, but it's also reflected in the election in 1977 of a right-wing Likud government. So within Israel, Israeli politics changes after 1967, which makes a peace treaty harder, but also on the ground, the settler movement. And in East Jerusalem, the suburbs, there's a band of Jewish settlements around the east to make Jerusalem firmly part of the state of Israel if there ever were a peace settlement. And that's a real problem as well. So the 67 war is, a, is one of those pivotal moments in the Arab-Israeli conflict along with 1948. And we're still living with the direct consequences of it today. And now that we've come to the 50th anniversary of the Six Day War, do you feel that Arab-Israeli peace is as far away as ever? I, d I do. I don't feel terribly hopeful. There was a window that was opened in the early 1990s. I think Yitzhak Rabin had a genuine conversion, and I think he was willing to take Israel in a different direction. I mean, I, I think now on the ground with the current Israeli government and the mood inside of Israel, also with the splits between Fatah and the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that there will be a peace settlement. Having said that, I mean, a week is a long time in politics, and what, of course, will happen is suddenly something will happen. And there'll be a snowballing of events, and maybe there will be some sort of a settlement, but I don't feel very hopeful. I'm not sanguine, and I don't really see how they can resolve the issue of the settlements on the West Bank, because any Palestinian state, which is so much smaller than Palestine was in 1940, any Palestinian state needs territory, and the question is where that territory is going to be. 
So if you had a two-state solution, if, if America stopped its support for Israel, it could well be that Israel will be forced into some sort of a settlement with the Palestinians, but it would be a painful one for the Israelis because they'd need to give up territory on the West Bank and they'd need to give up some sort of sovereignty over Jerusalem and be willing to coexist with the Palestinian state across territory that the Israelis had taken in 1967 and they've settled hundreds of thousands of people in. That was Professor Matthew Hughes of Brunel University, London. And as I mentioned before, you can read his article in the June issue of BBC History magazine. Also in this month's edition, you'll find pieces on a rebellion in Roman Britain, letters from the Tudors, writing historical fiction, and Jane Austen, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. Now, one of the most controversial moments of the Six-Day War was the attack by Israeli forces on an American ship, the USS Liberty. Both countries accepted that it was a tragic accident. However, some people do believe that a cover-up took place. You can read the full story of the incident in issue four of BBC World Histories, which is on sale now. And you can order this magazine via buysubscriptions.com. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our second interview this episode is with the popular historian Dan Jones. Dan is the co-presenter along with Susanna Lipscomb and Rob Bell, of a new three-part history of the Great Fire of London, which airs this week on Channel 5. Dan spoke to our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So, Dan, your new show, um, The Great Fire, with Susanna Lipscomb and Rob Bell, um, you look at the four-day blaze that overtook London in 1666. Can you tell us a little bit about walking the streets of London and how you followed the route of the blaze? So what's amazing about walking the streets of London in the footsteps of the Great Fire is that um, 
you can really get a sense of what it must have been like in 1666, even if the architecture is so different now. You know, you've got these these sort of glass and steel skyscrapers and there are only these sort of tantalising hints of the London that was there before. They are still there and you can still explore them. One thing um, that you look at in the show is what these streets would have been like at that time. Can you give us a quick sense of, um, you know, the hustle and bustle of the London streets and what kind of activities would have been going on? One of the things we try to do in this series is to evoke the sense of what London streets would have been like. And of course they would have been different, you know, much narrower, um, and therefore a, a sense of, 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 I think, really um, a pronounced sense of people close by one another. Uh, I think we are not so used in our generation, although maybe our grandparents would have been, to seeing um, people trading on the street rather than behind shop fronts, to see butchers out in the streets. You know, if we walked along Cheapside, this is the main thoroughfare of the old city and one of its most busy sort of mercantile streets, um, you know, we would have seen, if you've gone on poultry or whatever, you'd have seen stalls of people selling all kinds of of um of products we'd have you know the, the reason pudding lane is called pudding lane uh, is because it was in close proximity to um to a meat market and pudding or the sort of offal and the, the intestines and whatnot um would have, must have been a common sight on those streets we know very well that london streets were, were practically named uh, for what one might find there and so I, so I think in many ways London in 1666 would have closely resembled what we know today, busy, dirty, um, uh, a little chaotic and, and stressful, particularly if you're a sort of yokel from out of town like I am now. Um, but also I think, I think very different. I think, you know, you have, to, you have to price into your imagination of London all of those, uh, those bits of... of daily trade and and actually of people living as well you know i think there'd be a lot more people living in the square mile um, than there are today you have to sort of price all of that into your imagination of 17th century london and many people visit what is now pudding lane as um where they believe the fire started but actually in the first episode you find something um new yeah that was amazing actually that was um that was literally the first thing we shot or the first thing i shot um, in the first episode, we went to Pudding Lane, and you know, I'm sure uh, a lot of your, you know, your listeners and your viewers will have been to Pudding Lane, and you look up the sign, and maybe take a little selfie, um, and you think, well, of course, it was around here. This fire started. You got the monument over there, and it wasn't on Pudding Lane. In fact, it's round the corner on what's now Monument Street, and there was a sort of a bit of historical detective work, I suppose, that went into finding um, finding that out, and the process was in some ways brilliant and in some ways incredibly simple of really just overlaying um, a series of old maps. And, and this is quite a sort of um, an effective technique. And it's not the first time that this has been used for a big historical discovery because, of course, Richard III being located in, uh, in Leicester was pretty much a piece of desk-based map research. And the same is true here of finding out where Thomas Farriner's bakery was and where the Great Fire started. Um, and we were able to find and chart literally onto the ground where this little L-shaped bakery was. Not only where the L-shaped bakery was, but where the yard at the back was, where the, you know, the kindling for the ovens was, and, and therefore almost to the spot where the spark you know, that, that, uh, that began the Great Fire first landed. And that was a really exciting um, experience, actually. 
you know, you, you don't get a lot of them um, studying big, famous events. And so when it happens, when you can say, actually, you know what, people have been wandering around here for sort of hundreds of years, saying, well, it was, it was somewhere around here the Great Fire started, and then you know exactly that spot. That's kind of a cool feeling. We discovered a lot of things in this show, right? And one of my, my favourite bits was we went to St Paul's Cathedral, you know, a, a landmark in, on the British landscape, a, a, you know, um, a symbol of, of London. Um, and also a product of the Great Fire, of course, because, you know, the Norman Cathedral, gone. I've always been, I've always been slightly, um, s- not sad, but I've always had mixed feelings when I visit St. Paul, the, you know, the, the St Paul's we know today, in the sense that um, we have all these wonderful, glorious medieval cathedrals, Lincoln and Salisbury and Winchester and York Minster, you know, um, and yet the greatest of them all, St Paul's, is, what, is what's been lost to us. Uh, and wonderful as Wren's creation is, it's you know it's not that. Um, so we went, but but when we made this show, we went to St Paul's, and in the churchyard, there's a little manhole cover. Right? And if you pull up the manhole, I don't, I'm not saying do this, but one can pull up the manhole cover and go down inside, and you can still enter a part of the crypt of old St Paul's, the medieval St Paul's, and and it's not very big, you know, it's it's big enough. You couldn't have a party down there. Right, you could you could have drinks with a friend. Right, that's it's not huge, um, but down there is are the pillars, a couple of the pillars from Old St Paul's, from the crypt of Old St Paul's, and they're you know they're, it's musty and it's dank and it's it's hot because you're underground and it's it's kind of stinky, uh, but you you have these these fragments of. Old St Paul's Cathedral, and on these, on the sort of stone down there, there are these kind of black marks. Now, I, I'm not expert enough to say if these are scorch marks or if this is mildew, right? And I'm not expert enough to say if if they're scorch marks, whether they are scorch marks from the fire of 1666. But it certainly uh, brought to me a feeling when I was underneath New St Paul's in in the in the sort of depths of Old St Paul's. This might just be a scorch mark from the Great Fire of London. And that really brought home so much of what we tried to talk about and to explain during the course of making these films. So from that spark, we then see the fire um, spreads incredibly quickly. And within the series, Rob Bell looks at the architecture that contributed to to, to the speed of the blaze. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Medieval London uh, was a tinderbox. I mean, it wasn't like... They were stupid people, or people had no idea that that houses would go up. But the difference in sort of architectural thinking before and after the Great Fire, and therefore the difference in the look of London before and after the Great Fire, is is quite pronounced and profound. And you're right, Rob goes in the show and explores exactly why London was so ready to blow up in the conditions um, that arose in 1666. And there are still a few hints, you know, if you, if you imagine one of those sort of 16th century, maybe Tudor, you know, wooden fronted, overhanging kind of first story buildings, um, cramped streets, everything very close together. Uh, the sort of, these are perfect conditions for fire and particularly for fire to spread. Um, it can leap across streets between buildings and it can um, make its way through, so it can eat a city effectively very, very quickly. 
And now if you look around London, of course, today, we don't have any of that. You know, we have these flat-fronted buildings, whether they're the kind of, you know, 18th, 19th century terraced housing we're also used to seeing, or the, you know, the skyscrapers that are kind of all around the city at the moment. These are these are designed very clearly not to, uh, not to spread if they do catch fire. I'm, you know, I work on the Middle Ages a lot, and there'd been great fires in the 13th century. You know, you look at the ordinances for... Um, for sort of building regs, effectively, in um, the late 12th century, you know, Richard Lionheart's reign, people were very conscious that um, population, large populations living in close proximity um, were very susceptible to fire. Um, but it was still... It was still the case, you know, that in, in 1666 you had the mother of all fires and that was a, a combination of conditions and of negligence and of sheer bad luck. Within the show, a figure that pops up time and time again is Samuel Pepys. Mm. Um, just how valuable is his account of this period and in particular the four days of the fire? Well, Pepys is brilliant in so many ways. He's brilliant because he was such an astonishingly clever guy, brilliant writer, um, a comprehensive writer, a man who set great store by the value of his writings, you know, so he saved his diaries from the fire when we know, and as we we show in, in the three programmes, many other books around the city literally were gone. Pepys managed to save his diary. Um, Pepys's descriptions of 17th century restoration London are magnificent in and of themselves. And his descriptions of the Great Fire are incredibly evocative. Uh, you know, he has this wonderful description of, of the, the fire seeming to roll on the air and, and, and the, the pigeons, the doves that London has kept, seem to just drop out of the air as their wings were singed. You know? And, and it's, it's really poetic. And it's no surprise, given his, the sort of volume of his writing and the beauty of his prose, that historians have been drawn to Pepys time and time again. But... Set against that is the fact that it's one man's account, you know, and it would be like watching um, uh, one news channel and hoping to absorb a balanced view of any given news event, right? It, it would be foolish and we wouldn't do that. You'd, we would try, I think, to seek multiple perspectives. And speaking historically about the Great Fire, that's what we've tried to do in the show. You know, we haven't just been peeps bound. It's a case of going off and talking to experts from a, you know, a huge range of different fields, be they historians, archaeologists, fire experts. Um, I went and talked to a lovely man who was a bell ringer who taught us all about uh, how and why bells were rung to sound the alarm in cities. And I think that the process of doing that in this show was um, really sort of added depth to the story of the Great Fire. So when you were walking the route, um, you were studying it hour by hour. Were you able to pinpoint any time when it could have been stopped earlier? Well, there's a time early in the Great Fire where the Mayor of London, it's put to the Mayor of London, that um, London is burning and he might want to think about doing something about it. And um, he, he, he utters the immortal line, speaking of the fire, which I don't think he'd seen at that point, um, that a woman could piss it out, uh, which turned out not to be true. Um, although not an experiment we decided to carry out. 
nevertheless, that was that was a foolish decision and a decision grounded in the sort of grubby realities of politics because one of the most effective ways to stop a fire from spreading, as was eventually discovered or, or certainly enacted in 1666, is to tear down houses that it might be spreading to in, in the near future, called, called making fire breaks. And there was a, a moment, um, I think the first day of the fire, where there was an opportunity or there could have been an opportunity to to limit the spread of the damage by pulling down houses. But the houses in in question belong to wealthy people, supporters of the mayor, and the decision was taken not to do that. And then, you know... So these decisions were influenced by the politics of the day, by the class uh, yeah, of individuals? Yeah, exactly. Politics, politics affects decision-making and sometimes in a sort of catastrophically bad way. But that's, that's, I mean, that's not to say, I think, that... Um, anyone in 1666 wanted to see the whole of London burned down. Um, it's always the case, whatever period of history or event you're studying, that people make um, decisions based on partial knowledge in real time and without any understanding, or, or, or with, sorry, with limited understanding of context and um, and uh, and how these things are going to be remembered. So I don't think you can attribute blame to a, any one single person uh, in the Great Fire. In, within the show, you do look at three individuals. You pick out how the fire would have affected them. I think one of the things you want to feel uh, whenever you make television or you write books or, or you know, you study any particular, one of these particularly big events, it's very hard to marry the sort of scale of the event with the... Um, the intensity of the experience. And so one of the things we chose to do was to look at a banker and um, a bookseller and a shoemaker, you know. So we, we would kind of sit across London's social strata um, and, and get a sense for how individual lives were changed, affected, sometimes ruined, sometimes ended by the fire and by its spread. And, uh, and I thought that worked quite nicely because... The start of the show we were making, because it's, it's going to stream across three nights, you know, it's on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. It has the feel and the flavour of rolling news. I mean, it's not a pastiche of rolling news. It's not like we're pretending this is Sky News reporting or, or Channel 5 News reporting the, um, the Great Fire of London. But it's certainly closer to that than to making drama or to making, you know, another form of television. And I think... We're very sophisticated these days in the way that we make that, the, those kind of TV programmes. And you always want to feel the, you know, the, the, the granular emotion of, of, of the single person. So I think it was just a natural choice to try and, try and follow individuals through the course of this. And it, 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 it humanises an event that can otherwise seem impossibly large. If you were to sum up how significant this event was in changing the face of London, uh, how would you go about that? Well, the Great Fire ate London, devoured it. I mean, it left very, very little to be salvaged. Um, it was it, it was a point at which everything changed. It was a point at which um, London really tipped from um, the sort of medieval, early modern city that we, we think of and we can still occasionally see with this sort of um, quite flammable architecture... And the rebuilding process is, is if you like, the, the start of, of modern London. So in that sense, it is a dividing line. But what I'd also say about the Great 
fire and it's and London in general is that London has always been building up and knocking down and building on itself again. And that is the process of of London. You know, if you could have an epic sort of um, stop motion video of London, right? You know, like using natural history programs where you see the flower kind of burst. Uh, and you did that for London. You'd just see it going up and down and up and down and up and down over the centuries. And you'd see an incredibly large spike of, of downness and upness in the sort of, uh, you know, the 1660s and 70s. Naturally, of course you would. The fire was absolutely devastating. It was, in some cases, you know, the closest modern approximation might be um, a nuclear bomb, you know, a, of the sort that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know. Uh, it's, it's that level of destruction. So in the immediate aftermath, what, what was this feeling in London? What happened to the people who'd lost their homes and livelihoods? Well, I think it's very hard to sum up um, the experience, you know, the, the, what is London's experience of anything. But um, I think there was a mixture of incredible callousness um, with tenants being held responsible for their own properties rather than the owners of properties, you know, and, um, and either having to rebuild properties they didn't even own or to leave. Uh, you had people camped out in, you know, we filmed down in, um, uh, I want to say Finsbury Square, I think I mean Finsbury Square down in the city, where people had, had been in makeshift camps, you know, imagine um, Americans in the Dust Bowl or um, uh, people in New Orleans after, you know, after Katrina, you know, th- that sense of devastation, loss and and upheaval. But on the other hand, I think what we also know is that there was a lot of charitable giving and a lot of... Um, a lot of support for the, the most vulnerable people in society, both coming from from government, but also from private individual donations from the southeast, and um, and so it's a really mixed experience. And and I think um, some people were very lucky and you know escaped with their lives. They were able to rebuild their lives, and some people were very unlucky and lost their lives and escaped with nothing. And therein lies the nature of any big catastrophe. So why do you feel then that presenting the Great Fire in this way and presenting um, the spread of it hour by hour is a good way of portraying the, the disaster for the public? There are lots of ways you can, you can put history onto television. And it's, um, it's slightly a cliche, and I don't think it was necessarily ever true, but we, we sort of think of the very old-fashioned way of presenting as, uh, you know, um, old male, white university lecturer marched up to camera, delivers lecture. Okay. Uh, over time, history on television has become more and more influenced by travel documentaries. It's become quite wallpapery and uh, lots of shots with sort of a lot of flair and the presenter looking wistful and, you know, and wandering around and, and kind of emoting about being somewhere. That's, sort of, that's what I call kind of travel history. Um, I've made a lot of um, historical drama and TV's very good at drama. We know TV's excellent at drama and telling historical dramas, you know, stories of people betraying each other and falling in love and, and then chopping each other's heads off or whatever. Uh, TV's very good at that. But one of, you know, one of the great modern forms of television is rolling news. And it's in, in some ways the, the important TV medium of our age right now. And so when... You're making a show about the Great Fire of London. I think this is the, this is the perfect, perfect way to address it. Um, unfortunately, over recent weeks, we've seen several events which have been covered in in, in painful, painstaking, but you know, ex- extraordinarily professional 
uh, manner by TV rolling news. And I think we, we all know that experience of being glued to the television uh, in, a, in a combination of horror and, um, and compulsion as a, as a disaster unfolds. Now, we're dealing with a historical disaster. We're dealing with a cataclysm. We're dealing with a, you know, a, an incredibly destructive event. And it seems natural that to send effectively a team of reporters out into the streets of London um, to, to report on the event, the Great Fire of London, to viewers, that, that just seems like a brilliant, or it seemed, you know, when they asked me to do it, it seemed like such a brilliant treatment for this show. And... Um, I, I think it's really worked. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I would be reasonably honest with you if I didn't, if I thought it was a terrible gimmick and it had gone disastrously wrong. Um, I think it really, really works. That was Dan Jones. Episode two of The Great Fire airs today, the 1st of June, on Channel 5 at 8pm. And you can watch the first episode on Channel 5's catch-up service. And now it's time for this week's history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. The remains of three Roman houses dating back to the 3rd or 4th century AD have been uncovered beneath a park in Chichester. Using ground-penetrating radar equipment, archaeologists have revealed that one of the houses contained its own bathing suite, including hot rooms, a changing room and a cold plunge pool. This extremely well-appointed, luxurious townhouse would have been owned by the richest people in the city, stated archaeologist James Kenny. It's almost unique to see Roman remains survive in this type of setting and to be so complete. A diamond-encrusted locket containing a miniature portrait of the future George IV is to be sold at auction with an estimated price tag of £120,000. Painted by Richard Cosway, the locket belonged to Maria Fitzherbert, a married woman who was the object of George's affections. The pair shared a tumultuous relationship. In 1784, the future king stabbed himself in the chest with a sword, threatening suicide if Maria would not marry him. The locket was one half of a matching pair made in around 1800. The other locket, containing a corresponding portrait of Maria, was buried with the king when he died. Oxford University has sparked debate by announcing that studying non-European subjects will now be compulsory for its history students. While many have welcomed the move, some campaign groups have suggested that the inclusion of one compulsory non-European exam does not go far enough. The announcement follows last year's Rhodes Must Fall campaign, which sought to remove a statue of colonialist Cecil Rhodes from Oxford's Oriel College. However, the university insists that the decision was not a response to any campaign, but instead followed years of discussion. OK, now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for our History Weekend events are currently on sale. This year's weekends take place in Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and then York from the 24th to 26th of November. Speakers include the likes of Roy Hattersley, Michael Wood, Tracy Borman, Alison Weir and Dan Jones, who you heard from earlier. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time when we'll be talking about the First World War and medieval manuscripts. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions 
Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.